2019 is Heritage Radio Network's 10th birthday, and we've got a lot to celebrate. We need your support to bring you another year of the best in food radio. Help HRN ring in its second decade by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradio.org. My name is Joe Campanelli. I'm your host. And when I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at Fausto, um, where we have a great selection of wines or uh, Celestine down in Dumbo. And I'm not going to talk about myself anymore because I'm so excited about today's guest and today's show. This is the last episode of 2018. Um, I also want to encourage you guys to follow me on Instagram at, at Joe Campanelli. I will be announcing some pretty exciting things for 2019 on my Instagram only. So please follow me there. Uh, the, the guest we have today, last time she was in the studio was November 20th. Well, last time she was on the show was November 20th, 2013, over five years ago. And so much has happened in her career and her life. Uh, she is the superstar of the wine industry, uh, someone who I, I feel lucky to call a friend as well. We have in the studio Pascaline Le Peltier, Master Sommelier, managing partner of Racine's, uh, co-creator of some delicious wine in the Finger Lakes, and collaborator on some books. Uh, I'm just so happy you're here. Welcome back. Thank you, Joe. Very happy to be back with you. And recently won the title of the best sommelier of France, uh, the first woman ever to do that. Um, we're all just so like rooting for you. I think uh, everyone in uh, in New York in the restaurant industry was just like so happy and, and happy for you and excited for you and uh, was rooting for you. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, I could feel all the New York support in Paris. That's yeah. <laughs> and all these things are, are new in the last five years. What a big change since since your last um, uh, since the last time you're on the show. I wonder if you can tell us about Racine's. I recently went with uh, with Alyssa, and we just had this fantastic meal. We sat at the bar. Uh, we just dove our noses into Pascaline's beautiful wine list. Um, it's a challenging list because there's just too many things that that you'd want to drink on there and that you don't see on on a lot of lists that are so exciting. Um, how did that come about with Racine's? But last year on the show, you were uh, you were running Rouge Tomat somewhere in the sixth of 10 years of your time there, something like that, or seventh, your seventh mm -hmm. of 10 years in your time at Rouge Tomat. And how, how did Racine's come about? Yeah, no, I was very happy to take care of you, in fact, the other day. So uh, yeah, you have, you, you have to come back because I need to be probably take care of you. Like I felt a little bit uh, not the greatest host I wanted to please. It's an open invitation for you in 2019 in Racine. Um, well, you, on what you might feel like is an off day, is, is better than <laughs> everyone else on their best day. So we had just such a great time. And there's lots of wine enthusiasts there. And, uh, and the food was great. I, I, maybe, uh, I can't wait to see what happens with the food in the new year, because I know you're going to have a new chef there as well. Yeah, it's been um, yeah yeah it's been a really really awesome adventure with with Racine. Um, it's been since March, in fact. So yeah, you mentioned I last time I was with you here, I was running Rouge Tomate, um, and um, that was a, kind of an amazing experience. I was still on the Upper East Side, and then uh, we moved the restaurant uh, downtown in Chelsea, and uh, just the story ended up at at one point it was ten years of careers, and the owner wanted just to change the concept, and it was time for me to move so I left there 
um, in um, the August 2017. And um, I wanted to take a little bit of, of, of time off. Uh, you know, and I'm sure you know that, Joe, it's, uh, we, when we love restaurants, you kind of dedicate your life to being on the floor, being with your staff, being with your chef, with your guests. And I, I just felt at one point it was kind of, I was getting a little bit empty, you know, I was not feeling myself enough. Like it was very fulfilling in terms of a human side, but maybe not in terms of knowledge and, and checking new new ways of thinking about wine. And I was starting to do some books with people and collaboration and I was like, okay, I need to take a bit of a break just to feel myself back and so I can give back again. And so that was like the, the, the Living Rouge was bittersweet because I gave so much and they gave me so much uh, to, to really execute a certain vision of the food and wine industry we believed into. And I felt that for bringing to the next step, I had to, to step back. So six months off, um, making wine, touring the world, writing another book. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, the, the folks from Racine came to me and they were already friends. So Arnaud Tronche, uh, owner, I know it since before he opened Racine in 2014. And David Lilly with uh, the very, very famous, uh, one of the famous mine by Chamber Street Wine, came to me and said, you know what? It's cool to have you on uh, some nights just as a guest. Somebody do you want to join us as a partner? And a couple of weeks thinking about it, and in March I, I joined them uh, to, to, to work with them to really continue to make Racine one of the great wine destinations of this country. So. Wow. And uh, between Arno and, and David, such powerhouses already with great wine knowledge and great wine passion to bring you on is such an incredible step. Uh, and I know that Racine's also has an outpost in Paris as well, right? Is that, is there any relation to how does how does it work with the sort of uh, French restaurant? The French side, yeah, it's a great question. So um, is that um, when when Arnaud uh, opened and created Racine's, um, the um, Arnaud was not in the wine industry. Uh, he was in the tech industry and he loved wine. And one of the places he really enjoyed in Paris was Racine, a fantastic place um, open like I think ten plus years ago now in Passage des Panorama, created by, um, at that time, a guy called Pierre Jancou, that was then bought by uh, uh, another gentleman, David Lerner, and I know just hang out there a lot. And uh, um, the owner, David, uh, offered him some help to bring, like, bring his vision to New York. So I know he's raised a mind behind Racine in New York, help on with David Lilly, and a little help at the very beginning from, from the Paris, but we have no direct a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. It's a very indirect one. So the, now the place in Paris is run by an amazing, talented Italian chef. Really awesome. Uh, the one list is way smaller than what we do. It's way more natural wine too. Um, so there is, we are kind of uh, cousin of cousin, if you want. Yes. And how does your relationship work with David and Chamber Street? Um, I see some wines on your list that are just so rare and so special and hard to find around. I wonder if uh, maybe David's uh, help and buying power can can help you source some of that wine, but I also know at this point you have so many contacts and relationships to source these very special wines as well. Um, yeah, it's been really um, like working with Arnaud was a, a definitely a, a drive for me, but working also with David was a very very important things for me. Um, I, I realized, and that was also from my last year at Rouge when I hired a really amazing team of sommeliers with. Linda Milagros Diolago and, and James Slide, I realized I really need, I wanted to be surrounded by super, super talented people with me. I didn't want to be the one running the show and having like 
an army of sommeliers. Like, I, I really don't like that. And I really like to be with people that can teach me things every day. And uh, working with David is like that. So mm-hmm. we have a, a, a daily relationship. Um, and yes, having having him and having um, a kind of a, a, an, it's it's a complicated way to do it. But we we, um, we I'm looking always to to new producer or to very under the radar producers that are not yet distributed, and you can kind of bring them to the to the country in certain ways and um, and with David we we exchange a lot on that because they are always looking for new producer also and sometimes um, we we manage to to bring them for us also so um, that was really an exciting part of Racine that I was not totally able to do at Rouge which is really bringing exclusive for the restaurant uh, that we are the only one having um, and continue to look for for guests for really high quality wine for a good price which as you know is mm-hmm. becoming a challenging thing between allocation getting smaller and smaller pricing getting higher and higher uh, and people just wanted to drink labels and you're like that's that's complicated today it's going to get tougher and tougher so how can we go to the next waves of, of producer so we do that with David and we, we taste a lot of wine together and uh, he opened, like, he has more than 20 plus years of experience with this type of wine, which is really, really rare uh, in this business um, with people, direct relationship with the growers. That's fantastic. Um, and he has such an experience tasting this wine that I, I, I don't have it yet because I haven't been in this business for 20 years. So I don't remember, he can remember, oh, that wine was tasting like that when I tasted it like 15 years ago and it changed like that and like that. And you're like, wow that let's let's get that point let's let's get that producer in so. i think you do such a great job of having some of these uh the labels that people that want enthusiasts to get excited about and i have to admit that even i like i if i taste something that is uh you know very highly allocated or rare there's a little bit of a rush in knowing that it's not possible to get that mm-hmm. anywhere um but then also having those new up-and-coming ones that you know that that no one knows about yet in New York, or that most people don't. So when I, when I came into her scenes, you poured me something that I've never heard of, I've never seen the label, I don't know the producer at all, and then I also had a, a sort of a rare, sort of hard-to-get wine as well that uh, is a, a famous one amongst uh, wine lovers. Um, is that an intentional uh, thought process as to uh, the ratio between the sort of like blue-chip wines or the ones that people really want to get and introducing people to, to brand new wines? Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely something we, we want to do. Uh, Arnaud has built a, an amazing list, um, which I loved and was going to Racine before I was working with them. So, um, so we have we have the more classic producer, mm-hmm. um, and like one of the idea with bringing me in was also to continue to explore it the age. Um, so yes, you can come and you can have your 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 Burgundy or your your Bordeaux and and, and whatever, but. Um, first, the clientele change a lot. Also, even the collectors and all that. Um, I, I know I had some collectors last night, and they, they drank classic Burgundy, and then they were like, "Oh, can you can you pick us a wine that you are excited about that we know we are we will never drink by yourself, whatever the area, whatever the, the, the grapes." And and yes, yeah, so they were drinking Grand Cru Burgundy, and you bring something that. Is this kind of blue chip wine? Because it's, I think over delivering is like, wow, that's fantastic. Um, and so that is happening. And you, even these guys, they, or this woman, they, 
they know that they won't be able to buy forever what they are buying right now. And so they are really exciting to try really high quality wine from mm. areas they will never consider. So it's, it's, it's definitely a, a desire. And the desire is if you see something on the list, uh, there is a stamp of approval of quality. So if you see a sensor you never heard of on our list, there's probably a reason why it's there and it's probably really good for the price. So we are really wanted to to become more than ever a place where you discover the, this is blue chip wine, yeah. yeah. And it, you do such a great job of it. Uh, what are those areas that you're excited about that aren't as obvious to most people? Where did you take that, that one table? Where, uh, they were drinking of Grand Cru Burgundy. And what did you introduce to them? Oh, they drink, they drink Jurançon. Um, the southwest of France um, is, is fantastic. Alternative to Bordeaux. Uh, Côte de Duras, Côte du Marmandais, Bergerac. Uh, wine that worth absolutely nothing today. Mm-hmm. And they are extraordinary in quality. You, you still have some area in even in the in the northern Rhone like you, you still get the same names over and over again but if you start to look there is there is other people um, and you take every wine region like that even in Burgundy I, I just started to, to work with a, a top a guys that I love and, and you never see one anywhere and they're available in New York and you like you taste a Chardonnay and you're like my god that's as good as top top Merceau so you you um, I think there is every wine region today as really, really interesting things happening. But if you just always buy from the same supplier and rely on your distributor to do the job for you, you will end up with have, like having the same wineries and everybody else. And, and, and also you will have this allocation issue again. So how, how do you do that? But you, you, you test a whole portfolio of people instead of just always tasting the ones that you know you uh, you do you, there is a lot of access to so many great blogs and research today if you can't travel um lucky to be able to travel and to go to wine fairs and all that but if you can't there is so many things that you can look for in in good writing and good people that are really on the f- on the ground and reporting there is a couple of websites i really enjoy reading and the guys are always really very throw through and I'm like wow that wine I really want to taste it that's very interesting and then you start to look and oh my god they're in New York but from a guy I never tasted from and suddenly oh you have a new Saint Joseph on the list you know um, what are those websites where do, where do you <laughs> is that your secret or? <laughs> uh, you can find them like, there is a couple of them that uh, one that uh, I, I, I really like uh, is winterroar.com I give you one more secret. Winterwell.com. Bert is, is fantastic writers, extraordinary throw through uh, articles on producers. Um, uh, I, I never met the guy, but I need to thank him so much because he's, he's writing it up and a lot of great information. And uh, I usually tend to have the same taste. And yeah, so I'm like, wow, he likes this guy. I like this guy too. Um, but there is a couple of others. Uh, and, then, and then you need to taste the wine because you can't really believe in them. Um, anything that is written but high quality wine writing uh, for me is getting scarcer and scarcer you have a lot of wine writing today more than ever but a good wine writing with somebody that goes on the ground is not paid for the trip is not like you know influenced by whatever uh, does uh, does the job there is there is very few of them and this guy when they do it is like really really they deserve more praise and we need them because yes. we can't travel everywhere so 
Yeah, it's hard because the I'm sure the the smarter wine writing is uh, maybe not the one that gets the most clicks or is the most uh, fashionable, but that it it requires just like any good journalism, a lot of research and knowing what's going on the, on the ground. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, independence. Mm-hmm. And freedom of speech, you know, when you are sponsored by somebody, it makes a huge difference in how you can write. So um, there, there is, there is definitely a good, like really some great people out there, and and they deserve to be to be recognized, and and uh, and they, do, they really do the, the, the job for me. So, do you think if a journalist went on, I know this is off the topic, but uh, if a journalist went on uh, a trip that was paid by a region or a producer, and then they wrote about it, they should, they should. Uh, yeah. Say that they should let them let you know in the article. Oh, yes, they should. Yeah, up front, right. say, "Hey, that's a pay trip. Yes. That's a pay trip, and uh, this is what I've been, and this is my take on it." And then they can praise it up to the to the bone, or they can just, or at least, have a more critical point of view. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I want to know when when a journalist went on a pay trip, of yeah. course. And then you can you can take their. Uh, you know their opinion with a grain of salt, and you can understand why. Of course, they might write that. yeah, yeah, of course. And and I believe, and I believe you have to pay for the information. You know, mm-hmm. so you know, you I'm subscribing to Jensis Robinson. I am um, I'm Venus. I'm also with Alice Firing on. You know, so I believe that you have to pay for the information. So there is a couple of websites that you can have a free access to, but others you I have no problem like paying my membership because these guys is a way for them to be to be as independent as possible. Like Alice, yeah, she's paid for this newsletter, but she doesn't take cash back for things. And I know that she writes what she thinks. Um, and I need that. I need to trust more than ever today. Like the fake news stuff is, is everywhere. Like it's so good journalism worse is, than, key, is key. As worse than most people think too. Uh, there, there's just a more and more reporting out about just how insidious the all the fake news is. Uh, yeah. So it's, I think, yeah, I agree with you. To these days, it's important to know that someone's independent and, and says what's actually on their mind and not what they're getting paid for. Yeah, it's, it's and to make it clear, so like, that's, I, I, I like also what mm-hmm. 750 is doing right now. Uh, I think there is some really good pieces in, in what they're writing and are, they're kind of pretty clear when there is something that has been sponsored. Um, so it's, it's, it's brother to, to them. And, um, yeah, it's it's you get you know wine wine is and it can, we can come back to resting after that. But when you think about it, wine is based on trust. You know what what our relationship with wine is a lot of trust. Uh, the guest is trusting me. I trust my distributor, or my importer, or I trust the winemaker. It's a lot of trust. It's not like you are gonna control every step of the production or like. And it's it's that it's a feeling that we need to preserve. Like it's uh, something that needs to be. It's 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 really the core of the relationship when you think about it. Um, and how how do you how do you to build that? How do you preserve that to make sure we are going to continue to be able to to do the job the way we want to do? You know, I, I don't want just to ask all the time for the analysis of the wine. I want to trust the winemaker when he tells me, you know, I mm-hmm. just put forty parts per million and I'm organic. Yeah, but. Okay, you are not certified, and I never saw uh, an analysis of your wine. I just taste that there is something happening. Uh, but I'm going to trust you. You know, I need to trust you. I want to trust you. So how how do we build that up when, in a world of marketing and and smoke and mirrors? It's such a great point too, because even it, most of the wines that that I buy, at least, I know that you you travel even more than I do. Uh, I tend to buy them from the distributor, 
and I taste the wines for the first time from the distributor. And there's so much trust that goes into that mm-hmm. because only the winemaker actually knows what they did. Mm-hmm. And so the winemaker will then tell a story to their importer who will say something to the distributor. The distributor will say something to us buying the wine, and then we'll also relay that information to the guests. So even if everyone is being completely honest along the way, there's a possibility that there's, you know, we call it telephone where mm-hmm. you, you know, someone, maybe information gets, gets missed. Um, but especially if there's a lot of opportunity for someone to be dishonest at some point um, along that process. And so uh, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot too. Like, yes, the distributor told me this was or- certified organic, but, I'm yeah, putting you know, a lot of trust in them. You yeah. know that because you, you're making your partner also in a, in a winery. Yes. You have some wine projects, so you know you know, you know it's a bit more complicated than that sometimes. And and it's also the, the fear of being judged, or and so it's also very feeling that everything is black and white, whereas everything is gray, mm-hmm. uh, and not maybe having the time to really understand the, the process behind the way that somebody is, is farming or making. Um, we, we are taking just a lot of shortcuts and shortcuts mean that we are there is generalization and we are tends to not 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 to be able to really understand all the subtleties. Um, I, I don't know what is the, what is the answer to that. I don't know how we can continue to, to get just more that transparency that everybody is talking about it is craving for and mm-hmm. and and making sure that it's what we have been told or or we we can taste and. Uh, because you know, I was reefing about that recently, even more than when I was at Rouge. I like you, you, you are giving something to drink to somebody. You know, it's we are feeding people at the restaurant. We are, it's it's a very important thing when you are giving something that some, that person, the body of that person, is mm-hmm. going to absorb. It's it's a very strong responsibility in a way. You know, you don't want to poison anybody. You should not poison anybody with wine because it should be. <laughs> This should be uh, good for consumption, but it's it's not it's not a small deal. Um, and so, how do you how do you make sure you do your also that part of the responsibility properly? How how and 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 it's it's I think it's just we, we as buyer I, I believe we need to be more demanding. I think it's too easy to 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 just grab the last cool wine that is coming on the market and you don't even ask about it. Mm-hmm. We just need to be more demanding as buyer. Uh, we need to be more demanding for the information, for the relationship with the grower itself. Uh, of course, we can always contact them directly, uh, but it's uh, it's it's. I, I think we need to step up, and 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 we didn't realize how much of an influence we can have on that part. Also, to continue to make that business more transparent, both on the information and also of the taste of the wine in the glass. You are an early proponent of organic, biodynamic, natural wines. Mm. I've tasted many at uh, your restaurants at, at Rouge Tomat and, and Racine. And always the wine in the glass is delicious. It's clean. It's beautiful. Um, and so I also see that there's a possibility where people will say, okay, it, it checks these marks in terms of the farming or uh, the vinification process, but then don't taste the wine, Don't aren't demanding with that. And I find that you are just as demanding with how the wine tastes in the glass as uh, the, the production of getting it there. And your, your wines are beautiful, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you, you want good wine. You, I want pe- my guests to be happy. So it's part, the job of a sommelier or a wine buyer <coughs> working in restaurants is to make sure that the wine is going to please the guest and mm-hmm. there is a certain, um, there is a real pleasure when consuming that bottle. So 
it's our job to to understand how that one is going to behave the time is going to be on the list and if it's going to match the guest and knowing that you you know that we have sometimes two minutes to understand what the person wants without even using a, a vocabulary that is easy for us to we have, we have to decipher what what the guest wants and and yes you need to have good delicious wine some of them may be a bit more challenging just because they are pushing the limits in terms of the component and, and suddenly you are discovering new aromatics or new 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 intensity of savors that you never had before but we, we really try to 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 bring wines that are not overly um, faulty and there is there is fault uh, there is a knowledgeable fault in some some natural wine of course uh, or very hands-off winemaking wine um, but the more I think about it, the more I think what, what really talks to me is today is the importance of farming, more, more than ever. I think we, even with the natural wine movement and all that brought and the, all the questions that that brought, and that was absolutely necessary uh, because the pendulum went too far on the conventional, very technological side. We, we, we see today, and you, I'm sure you see that, people coming to you and the first thing they tell you is like, oh, we make wine with no sulfur. I'm like, great. But are your vineyard organic? So no, but there is no sulfur. I'm like the point of the no sulfur is not no sulfur. The point is there is to make wine without additives. It requires a certain way of farming that allows vineyard to like to 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 sustain and to produce grapes that could could be vinified without adding anything. And that is the interesting part. And the interesting part is not the fact that you are making no sulfur. It's like this plot of land you get grapes from can still make grapes in 50 years because if it's not farmed properly, who knows how is it going to be able to just produce things in 50 years. So that's the important thing. And we, we got just so over over blurred by the, the no sulfur things that for me it's... it's, it's it's really a problem. We we start to see a lot of industrial natural wine, a market when people are really putting no sulfur on. on it. But you know there is a, a some a bunch of products you can use not to use sulfur that are probably less desirable than sulfur. Um, and I don't know why we can't move forward from that debate because debate mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything anymore. It's and funny. It's been vilified. Uh, on the back of the label, and then it's mm. been like a cause celebre of uh, natural wine, and um, both are, I think, both are problematic in, in either way. Um, yes, yes, yes. Natural wine allowed us to ask a question and say we went too far. Like we went too far in the in the in the processing of the wine, mm-hmm. and 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 it's no good for nobody. It's no good for it's no good for nobody. But today we, it's, it's not going that well. Like viticulture is still. It's still the pollution for viticulture is insane, insane, and 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 I, f- I I don't I don't want to be part of that. I want to be part of trying to see that there is alternative and to support people that are showing the alternatives, and not just for it's not for me. It's for for for, for tomorrow. Like I don't think people realize how bad the situation is, and uh, and need to be a bit more judgmental than just saying oh I just drink no sulfur wine. Like yeah, but. Once again, if your grapes are not coming from the right plot of land, you're, you're just yes. abused could, by the market. I can plant some vines in Staten Island, not add any sulfur. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's going to be a, a, I, I, a great wine. It's not only great wine. And like the question is, what does, is okay. a great wine? You know, I was talking with David Lilly the other day. We had to to talk about what is a great wine and that consumption of great wine. It's 100 points Parker wine. Like, you know, 
with wine that is moving you, touching you, like we, all these ways that we don't know how to talk about wine today anymore, mm -hmm. that is, how do you express that quality and not that quantity? How do you do that? Alice came up, we, we did that really cool tasting two years ago for Vinitaly, and she was asked to organize a tasting called Wine Without Walls, and we had criteria of organic or biodynamically certified wine and below two, two levels of sulfur. And went there, and she put a whole list of criteria that had nothing to do with points. And it was like emotional reaction, sense of place, salinity, and energy in wine. So we had like all these new criteria, and we and we appreciated the wine, and we tried to appreciate over a couple of, of. It was a bit tough because we wanted to taste them over a couple of hours to see how they were evolving in the glass, but they were like, no, you have to taste them like half an hour anyway. But that was a really interesting experience, um, and I, you realize that you really don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about wine, but that was a new experience of appreciating and not judging. So to, to go back to that is, we, it's, it's so easy to go back to the certain conventional that goes a certain type of wine that are supposed to be the, the benchmark that you can judge and put in boxes. That I'm not sure it's, we have to, to, to continue to push and create a new vocabulary to talk about wine without becoming too poetic or too metaphoric, but we, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, we, we don't really know how to talk about wine today, I think. I couldn't agree more, and I'm, I'm going to think about that uh, as we take a quick break. We'll be right back. Sorry, that was too long. No, it's so... Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. All right, we're back with Pascalina Peltier, Master Sommelier, uh, managing partner of Racine down in Tribeca. Beautiful, delicious restaurant on the outstanding wine list. Um, also uh, co-creator of this beautiful wine. I actually, I, I said before that uh, I think that her wine is delicious. I haven't actually tasted the Chepica. I just assume, you know, following Pascaline's career and the wines that she's poured me over the last 10 years, that anything that she has uh, her hands in will, will be delicious. Um, but uh, I'm holding a bottle of the Chepica Catawba, 2017. I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen Catawba on one of your wine lists. Can you tell us about <laughs> this, uh, about this wine? Yeah. Um, so it's a project I had with Nathan Kendall. Um, that is a really, really, uh, dear friend and a fantastically talented producer in a finger legs. And, um, the project came out with Rouge de Chelsea. In fact, I was looking for organic wine for, from local, like the question of local is a, is a big one for me and it was a big one at Rouge and it's going to become a big one at Racine. Um, 
and we were looking to get to do organic wine and I was chatting with Nathan and we were like okay maybe one of the way should go to look for hybrids uh, and it was really inspired by the work of Deirdre Aiken in Vermont with La Garagista where she switched from vinifera to hybrids to be able to grow biodynamically in Vermont and um, Nathan went on to hunt and we find that uh, the only certified vineyard at that time, organically certified, was a 1971 certificate, certified vineyard of Catoba, Delaware, on Cucalic and probably from vines that were more than 100 years old. And by doing more research, we're like, okay, so these grapes were here forever and they were making amazing sparkling wine uh, in the 19th century. Uh, gold medal in Paris, million of cases of sparkling wine with Catoba and Delaware. Catoba. And then they went, move on to become just table grape after Prohibition, World War II, and the Vinifera stuff. So we decided to, um, it's more a political and ecological project, is to say that if you are in an extreme area of wine, wine growing, where Vinifera is a challenge, uh, and the Finger Lakes are an amazing wine region, it's fantastic and really a top region to watch. It's just a tough one. It's cold, there is a lot of pressure in terms of disease with the humidity the heat you know. so it's not the, it's not let's put it's not southern california or it's not the rhone okay or southern rhone it's really complicated why and is it exciting it's exciting because it's cold climate area because there is a microclimate with a lake because there is definitely a potential for things to happen uh, in terms of the soil type and the profile of wine with a long growing season so there is a lot of things potentially there but it's tough you have to treat or if you don't treat it's a really big jeopardy for your harvest uh, it's cold so you may lose part of your vineyard if it's too cold in the winter so it's a lot of challenge so it's a extreme in a certain way but hybrids it's, we're here and they were doing very well so because vinifera is a little bit more finicky a little bit uh, not not as sturdy as a hybrid in absolutely the it's yeah. not as sturdy and then it's sensitive to milieu and odium and mm -hmm. American disease and and just that yeah it's not as studied as the American grapes for American territory and the Catoba and the Delaware are what we call background hybrids. So they were done in the background and in the 19th century and people like pol like contamination through, through uh, pollen and they were just hybriding and they were creating. And, um, and so we're like, we don't want to make the most, uh, we want to make a terroir driven wine that is going to be aged for like 100 years. We just want to try to make delicious, quaffable local wine that's going to be at a better price and that could be done organically. What don't we try with the hybrids? Why don't we try to do again the sparkling one that was done in the 19th century with these grapes? And and we didn't want to add anything to the wine. We wanted to see if it was possible to do it without anything. And so we are not looking to it's a petty on that area as a sparkling wine because the acidity of the grape is so high, so it's cold for uh, for sparkling wine. Uh, it's super stable in terms of microbiology because of this crazy high acid. Uh, and so we, we made we, we made it, we just tried, we bought some bulk wine the first year just to try, to, because it's impossible to find Catoba that is dry, we find something, we made it champagne style with like kind of the result. And so the year after we're buying a ton of each grapes and we, we made the wine, 16 was our first vintage, 17 is the second vintage. It's 9% alcohol, super high TA, we don't need to put anything, it's fermented bone dry. Um, wow, and 9% and alcohol, nine, bone dry. The, I don't know. Six bar of pressure in a bottle. So you can really yield the catoba very high. We have not to do anything. We just sorted everything by hand. Great. And it worked. And this year, we it's going to be a rosé because the catoba didn't have enough acid. 
to make a sparkling. So we are going to make a rosé because Katoa is a pink skin gray variety. And it's going to be like a 9.5% rosé that is super quaffable. So but it's like Pinot Grigio or Trousseau or that yeah, kind of... Yeah, yeah, it's kind of that color. Yeah, very loose. It looks like a, it looks like a, a native grape. Um, but the whole thing is about saying maybe for everyday wine, instead of trying to go for super high-end viniferas that are going to cost a lot of money to farm, uh, maybe we should reconsider and how can we work with the hybrids? And the Concorde, the, the Catoba, the Delaware of the world. It's a question of taste because per se the grape are not bad and you can make wine with them. Uh, and that, that's the project. What happens with Catoba uh, if you make it still or a little bit riper? Uh, so it's, it loses us, like it becomes very flabby very fast. Mm-hmm. So it's a late picking grape, so it's mid-October, even after, and then it just drops and it's super delicious to eat. It's really fantastically delicious to eat and then you can make like sweet wine, but they don't have the same bright, uh, bright acidity. So it's a picking time is very tricky. But the ones you have, we all do a one week skin contact, and you can see like the one is white. It's I cannot <laughs> it's wait to try this. This is so super exciting. Think, how much of this do you make a year? <sighs> we made nothing this year. We made twenty four hundred bottles. Twenty four hundred bottles. It's but it's wine. it's once again it's a project. It's a more. A st- uh, continuing to push the work that people in Vermont with Deirdre, that people are doing in, in Canada, in Quebec, uh, in, next to Montreal, they're working with hybrids and they're making, and I did that tasting, in fact, three weeks ago, I went in Montreal with some of the top sommeliers in the world and we had 20 or 32 wines from around Montreal, from Quebec. And the whole thing was, could we find out which one were made from hybrids and which one were made from Vitis vinifera? Blind. Blind. Okay. And I was like, easy. <laughs> I was so wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. I was so bad. I had half of the good answer. I couldn't pick up the hybrids. I would think I could pick up the hybrids I as well. <laughs> but if you can't, I certainly cannot. You're but that's what was awesome. That was yeah. like... Yes, yes, you have the Vidal, wow. you have the Saint-Jean, you have the Créchant, you have the Frontenac. Mm-hmm. And the wine were good, and they could farm them with less product, with less, less chemicals or synthetic pesticides or fungicide. And so that's the whole deal, that the wine, if you treat them properly. So that um, next year, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to do way more research. I have a lot of projects more on the hybrids question, uh, because I think that is something we, we need to... to uh, to pay attention to us as sommelier because this can be a great alternative to a higher, like more approachable financially wine because usually you have more yield mm-hmm. and, and good good alternative to um, to, so, to certain area of the world that should probably work with hybrids. All right, we'll be looking out for that for your research <laughs> and uh, maybe we can check in on that uh, when you have some more stuff to announce. And I, I, congr- huge congratulations again. I know we spoke about at the beginning on the uh, the sommelier competition. Can you tell us uh, how you prepared for that? Have you been? Is this something you've been wanting to do for a long time? So. Um, yeah, in two worlds. I've been, I've been, this is my, my, uh, fourth, that was my fourth time as the best French sommelier competition. So I've been doing that for a while. Uh, but in fact, I was, I was going for another diploma in France called uh, uh, MOF, uh, stands up for Meilleur Ouvrier de France, which is kind of the best craftsman in his field. It's an amazing French examination for more than 200 different crafts uh, from uh, cheesemonger, fishmonger, chef, pastry chef, uh, stain maker, like carpenter. Uh, sure, every like every craft in France tends to have that MOF, and when you see that, there's a little uh, color, uh, the flag you, you can carry it, 
and that an amazing diploma about transmission. You are you should be at the top of your field in terms of expertise, but you also show management skill and the ability to mentor the new generation. And it's every three years. And it's a very big deal in France. And I wanted to do that for the sommelier. So I prepared for that diploma. And the MSF, the best French, was kind of on a sidetrack because I was like, I don't want to compete against other people. I want to pass something with others as an emulation. And so I, I was very lucky because I went and I got the MOF. Wow. And a month after, I was in the best French and I got the best French. But so the preparation was two years, uh, two years preparation and every day. Um, every a lot of reading, um, tasting every day, service every day. It took me two years with like probably between one when I was not studying a lot to six to seven hours. Um, but it's the competitions, they don't really matter as themselves. Like the title doesn't matter. Um, it's what do you do with it? So now I'm even more, <laughs> uh, especially in France, I, I have a, I got that title. So I, people are going to listen to me even more so I can tell them we need to move to organic farming guys like I I know I know how to taste wine and please please help me to come to, to support the, the who is like the guys that are really doing the real job so the title is more about it's about that it's not I don't care really for myself it's how can you be a, a, a torch holder or a force for your industry for the whole of your industry to, to, to keep on helping to build a future. So it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And that is why everyone in the New York wine industry and now the world thinks that you are the best. And you are. And it's been such a pleasure to finish off a great year of In the Drink with, with you as our uh, the, the last and just most incredible guest, Pascaline. Thank you so much for being on In the Drink. Joe, uh, thanks for everything you are doing for this industry. That's... It's your massive inspiration. So, Aww, thanks, thanks gee. for what you are paving our road <laughs> to 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 be to be to be good every day for us and for our guests and for people with us. So, thanks. Well, the love is mutual. I want to thank uh, Heritage for giving me this platform over the uh, you know in the course of this year and the last six years. Um, I want to thank our producer. Jasmine Molly uh, for putting these episodes together. Our engineer Jeet. Uh, I really want to thank all of you guys for listening. It's been uh, it's been a, a great time. Like I said, please follow me on Instagram. I'll uh, I'll be announcing something um, in the coming weeks that I think uh, I'd, I'd love for you guys to know about. And hope you guys have a great holiday season. And uh, this has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.